welcome to October's episode of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. This month's topic is general surgery, and we are lucky to have some great speakers joining us today. First up, we will have Dr. Edgardo Solis, one of Westmead's general surgical registrars, who will be discussing the utility of antibiotics in patients with uncomplicated acute diverticulitis with a study that the Westmead Surgical Unit was actually involved in. Then we will hear from Dr. Sunny Rajput, one of our ED registrars, who will be exploring the impact of patient COVID-19 infection on perioperative outcomes. And then to finish, we will have Dr. Andy Chen, another one of our general surgical registrars, who will be exploring the use of antibiotic therapy as an alternative to appendectomy in appendicitis. We are also lucky enough to be joined this month by General Surgical Fellow at Auburn Hospital, Dr. Sergei Sanikov, who will be presenting our interlude this month, as well as ED Staff Specialist, Dr. Michael Haddock, who will be providing insight into our discussions along the way. So to get things started, we have Dr. Edgardo Solis, who is going to be taking us through a paper by Rebecca Jong et al, published this year, titled Antibiotics Do Not Reduce Length of Hospital Stay for Uncomplicated Diverticulitis in a Pragmatic Double-Blind Randomized Trial. So Edgardo, I'll hand it over to you. Thanks, Caroline. I believe that this paper is actually the first to really look at an ICT that's between antibiotics and a placebo. And this particular RCT was carried out between multiple centers, mostly in New Zealand. And then Westmead was the only Australian center that was involved in the running of this trial. The diverticulitis or diverticular disease is rather in itself common disease. And it has a prevalence of about 60% by the age of 60. And acute diverticulitis itself is probably one of the most common ED presentations that we get in any kind of general surgical department. It's mostly a disease of the Western world, and we've seen an increase of the incidence in countries that have adapted a Western world diet as well. And it commonly occurs at the Sigmoid colon, uh, but it can occur in other regions of the colon, and most people will know it is predominantly a right-sided disease um, in Asian populations. From those patients who do have diverticular disease, about 4 to 15% of them will go on to develop diverticulitis. And that incidence continues to be on the rise over the last uh, few years that we've seen in some of the new analysis of this data. And initially, the underlying pathophysiology that they thought was, or that is considered to be the cause, is uh, either micro or macro perforation that leads to either a local inflammatory response, or if it's big enough perforation, like a micro perforation, it can lead itself to a more generalized infection of the abdomen and can either lead to abscess collection. So this idea of generalized peritonism from this feculent peritonitis. But initially they thought it was a result of a block, either because of a feculate, kind of like an appendicitis that led to an increase in pressure and perforation. But now there's also a changing trend in view of this pathophysiology. And they think that it's more due to erosions of the diverticular wall itself from increasing preliminal pressures or thickened food particles. Like any disease, it basically has a big spectrum in presentation and the classical thinking between uncomplicated and complicated diverticulitis is considered whether there is a perforation or not and whether there's any complications from the perforation. And so when you talk about complicated diverticulitis, what they really mean is a perforation that's either led to generalized peritonism, you have an abscess formation, fistula formation, 
And in long-term chronic events where people have recurrent episodes, it can even lead to chronic strictures that can then present later in life as large bowel obstructions. So when we look at uncomplicated diverticulitis, what we're really looking here is diverticulitis that may have had a microperforation, but without any of those complications. So really just a local inflammatory response. And so that's what the paper that I'm looking at today looks at. It's just that uncomplicated inflammatory response. And what the paper is really looking at is what well, the question is the need for antibiotics, because this concept of use of antibiotics comes from data that's been mostly looked at the complicated diverticulitis, in which obviously you want to cover for with antibiotics because you have a more generalized dissemination of infection compared to just the local inflammation. But obviously, an uncomplicated diverticulitis is a slightly different pathophysiology if you compare it to a macro perforation. And so, at present, antibiotic treatment is still the standard of care for any kind of diverticulitis. This RCT comes off the back of two other RCTs that have been done over the last 10 years. The first one was in 2012, I believe, and the other one was done recently in 2017. However, in both of these RCTs, it wasn't a comparison against the placebo. It was either you got antibiotics or you didn't get antibiotics in the treatment. They also had a slightly different inclusion criteria compared to our study that we did here with our criteria being a lot more stricter as to what was included and what was excluded. And in these other studies, they accepted fevers and race inflammatory markers a little bit more compared to us. And I'll go into that a little bit later. But basically, both of those studies found that antibiotics had no overall impact in recovery or rates of admission, nor did it shorten the duration of treatment. And this is still a growing topic of somewhat controversy across the world. If you look at different societal guidelines, particularly from colorectal societies, each country has a slightly different approach to this. And some have adopted a no antibiotic approach, whilst other countries have not. And Australia at the moment still very much hasn't accepted it. And so it's still, depending on which institution you go to and where you work, still very controversial area of topic. And the way we classify diverticulitis is using the modified Hinchy classification, which is based on the CT findings at the time, which ranges from a scale of zero to four, zero being a mild clinical diverticulitis, one A being confined pericolic inflammation or phlegmon, one B being a confined pericolic abscess, two being a pelvic distant intra-abdominal retroperitoneal abscess, three and four being generalized purulent peritonitis or fecal peritonitis respectively. So for this study, and for the other studies, they basically just looked at that Hinchy 1A classification, which was just confined pericolic inflammation or phlegmon. So that just really localized. So when looking at this study that we did, the, what I like to call our trans-Tasman study, breaking it down to the kind of PICO principles, the patient population we had was any patient over the age of 18 presenting with uncomplicated diverticulitis, mostly diagnosed on the left side. So either sigmoid or descending diverticulitis, that was a Hinchy 1A as proven on CT scan. The intervention key was really the placebo. That was the intervention and the control was the standard antibiotic treatment, IV antibiotics and oral antibiotics as well. And the primary outcomes they looked at were the length of stay in hospitals and that was the primary outcome. And the secondary outcomes included withdrawal rates from the study, the occurrence of adverse events, readmission to the hospital within one week and 30 days, procedural interventions, change in the serum inflammatory markers, inpatient reported pain scores at 12 and 24 hours from admission. They had a quite strict inclusion criteria. And I think the best way to describe it is more looking at everything that would get you excluded from the study. So the exclusions included meeting more or equal to or more than two of the SERS criteria, so systemic inflammatory response, 
in-room criteria, which included temperature of 38 or above, heart rate more than 90, respiratory rate more than 20, or white cell count less than four or more than 12. And the other exclusion criteria included unable to give consent or answer symptom-related questions due to language barrier or cognitive impairment. And I think that's quite critical to the study population when you look here at Westmead, when we have such a diverse multicultural community in which a lot of our patients are non-English speaking background, that would be in a particularly high impact in the acceptance of patients into the study. And you also kind of have to wonder whether those patients who were admitted into the study, whether some of them truly had a good grasp. And there might be a certain bias when you look at the self-reported, the patient self-reported survey as to how reliable that might be. Everyone has a slightly different gauge and criteria as to how we gauge whether a patient really can understand or be involved in some of these studies or not. The other exclusions included previous drug reactions to antibiotics used in the study, or if they had a lactose intolerance, whether they've used steroids for more than five days prior to presentations, whether they've been administered any regular immunomodulators or biologics within the last six months, any regular use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for more than a week prior to the presentation, and whether they've had more than one dose of intravenous or more than two doses of oral antibiotics during their illness prior to enrollment, uh, whether they were pregnant or if they had an ASA class four or CT evidence of complicated diverticulitis. So overall, like I said, it was a pretty tight criteria that they had in order to admit the patients into the study. And this in itself may not be truly reflective of the population we see coming through the emergency department, as most of the people that come in usually tend to present with more of those SERS-like criteria. And so I think a lot of them were probably excluded because they were meeting a lot of those, you know, they had high white cell counts or they had fevers. And so when you look at this paper, you have to consider whether this is truly applicable to the population we see coming through the ED. But I think it certainly reflects more perhaps the patients that GPs will be seeing on a day-to-day basis, these kind of really mild and complicated diverticulitis or pains. And so from that perspective, it's perhaps more applicable to an outpatient setting than it is to the ED setting. The other thing to consider as well is that the power of this study was also to look at the potential differences in the length of, of hospital stay. So the sample size is in itself is not big enough to detect statistically significant changes in the other clinical domains. And so when you look at the secondary outcomes, you have to take it with a grain of salt, knowing that the numbers involved in the study were not big enough to truly give you a definitive answer into the analysis they had from, from that. Then in terms of the randomization, it was pretty low bias. It was a computer-based random number generator. And the medication manufacturing itself was done by an external pharmacy. And I think it was like in New Zealand, the pharmacy. So basically none of the sensors could meddle in the allocation concealment. The randomization itself was blocked into groups of four to ensure a comparable allocation to treatment and control groups. And the participants, study investigators, and clinical staff were blinded to the treatment allocation. There was also an independent data monitoring committee that was set up to review the data for the study. So when you look at all those perspectives for an RCT, that's a pretty good randomization. And it very much minimizes the risk of bias because what they've really done is they've blinded the five key groups that need to be blinded in any kind of RCT. Those groups being the patients, the healthcare providers, the data collectors, the adjudicators of outcome, and the data analysts. And similarly, as I mentioned, because there was an external pharmacy that was providing the medication, that allocation concealment was pretty tight for this study. So no one could really know truly what, whether they were giving a placebo or an actual antibiotic in the treatment of the patients. And you can see this in the demographic table. They were fairly evenly distributed patient 
demographics and you know past medical history and all those contributing factors they're fairly well distributed across both groups in the study there may have been a small risk of bias perhaps from the adjudicator's perspective because even though the cts are being reported by blinded radiologists inherently the images were being reviewed by the surgeons or the surgical team as well and they would have been aware of the fact that there was a study running and so there's always a small chance of a potential influence that the surgical team co could override that ct scan if they felt that the radiologist wasn't matching the images being provided. And that happened with one patient in which they ended up having uh, surgery for a heartman's because the CT scan was initially reported as uncomplicated. Then the surgical team came back and re-reviewed it and it ended up being an actual complicated uh, diverticulitis. So there may have been a small amount of bias from that point of view. Overall, from the 459 initial patients that were assessed for eligibility, 279 were excluded leaving 180 to be randomized. And from each group, one patient had requested withdrawal in, from both control groups. And in one group, one patient had died, not because of diverticular related complications, but they ended up having a stroke and the sequelae of that led to the, to the death. And then looking at their follow-up data, it also seems like there was quite minimal loss of data. And the final analysis was an intention to treat analysis. And all that, when you look at it from an RCT perspective, again, it kind of ticks all the boxes to minimize the bias. And so, it was actually pretty tight, well-run, randomized control trial. So I think the data that they gained from it is a fairly reliable data. So when you look at the results, the primary outcome was, again, the length of hospital stay. And basically, they found that the length of stay was not prolonged in the placebo group when compared to an antibiotic group. There was no significant difference in the median time of hospital stay between the antibiotic group at roughly 40 hours, the median length of stay. And when you compare it with the placebo group, there was also no significant differences between groups in adverse events, readmissions to the hospital within one week, and readmissions to the hospital within 30 days. So they also looked at the secondary outcomes. And overall, when you look at that as well, there was no significant differences. But again, just keep in mind that the power of the study wasn't really enough to look at those secondary outcomes in any significant statistical detail. So it has to be taken with a grain of salt. The only thing I found was that they mentioned in the methodology that there was meant to be a self-patient evaluation about the symptoms at 12 and 24 hours, but I couldn't see anywhere in the paper any analysis of that patient-reported symptoms, and I couldn't particularly find that in the appendix. So I'm not really sure what happened to that of the study, whether the results were just not significant enough or whether there wasn't enough reported or reports being provided by the patients. But I think that would have been interesting to look at or to have an idea as to how the patients themselves actually felt and compare that between the placebo and the antibiotic groups, because that often tends to be an important aspect to a lot of this research, the patient's own perspective of, of the illness and how they recover themselves from it. But the overall conclusion from the study was that it demonstrated that the use of placebo is not inferior to antibiotics when comparing to the length of hospital stay. And then breaking it down into the benefits and the limitations of this study, as I mentioned, the benefits were one to pretty tight run RCT. When it comes to a randomized controlled trial, the risk of bias was actually quite, quite minimal. They used a very standardized way of defining what uncomplicated diverticulitis was using the Hinchy classification, which is basically the international way of describing diverticulitis. They also had a pretty good established protocol of treatment for all study patients once they were admitted to hospital, which standardized potential variances. So they had a protocol for the use of analgesia, antimedics, diet, and discharge criteria. But in terms of limitations, 
like any study, there's always some sort of limitation. And one of the main ones that I mentioned at the start was the language barrier, because like I said, in, the, in our patient population, there's going to be a lot of non-English speaking patients. And so this would have potentially excluded a good portion of patients that we would see in the emergency department or that GPs would see in their offices. And similarly, this would exclude potential patient factors that would have been interesting to see or analyze overall. And similarly, when it comes to the patient questionnaire, I can't recall from when we ran the study whether this was designed in any other language apart from English. And again, when you're trying to run these studies in a sense like Westmead, which is a multicultural, this again would have impacted on patient selection. And this in itself could potentially have a certain degree of selection bias when you look at your study. And the other thing is, as mentioned, the inclusion exclusion criteria, because it was so stringent with it, it does limit the generalizability of this study, particularly when you're looking at a tertiary center like Westmead. But this will be something that's interesting to look at from a GP perspective, perhaps a study that you can do as an outpatient where you, where you follow up patients that present to the GP that have a Hinchy 1A classification and see how they go with just conservative management. Perhaps that would be a more suitable patient study to do. But overall, three take-home messages that I would think you can take from this paper is that there is a role of treating uncomplicated diverticulitis with no antibiotics, but you have to understand that this isn't a standard of practice yet. The second point would be that if you do go down that path, patients do need to be provided with an adequate outpatient follow-up plan if they are given a non-antibiotic regime because you do need to account for patients potentially deteriorating and developing a complicated diverticulitis because that's just the natural path of this condition. And that really this is a growing area of research with the acceptance of this practice varying between institutions, depending on the surgical department itself and their own views and how willing they are to take on some of these risks. And I think with that third point, it's more comes to, with anything in research, kind of challenging medical dogma and keeping a really open mind that perhaps what we've been doing for the last 10, 20 years, is not necessarily reflective of what we should really be doing. And so always kind of questioning and thinking what, whether the use of antibiotics or any other kind of therapeutic intervention is really the most correct thing to do for any kind of condition. Thanks, Edgardo. That was a really, really comprehensive covering of that paper. I feel like I understand diverticulitis a lot better now than I did before we started this. I guess just for our listeners, would we be right in saying that all these patients that were included in this study would typically still be treated with antibiotics today? Yeah. If they came to any emergency department, they'll probably still be given antibiotics. Yeah. Antibiotics to go home with yeah. if they were clinically well. That's right. So yeah. Perhaps you might admit them if they have any issues with pain. So symptom management may, need, may require admission. Yep. Particularly some of them may have really bad nausea or vomiting as a result from it. And so you just need to meet them some for some hydration. But if they're relatively well, which they should be, then yeah, you can just send them home with oral antibiotics like amoxicillin with clavulanic acid and could be managed by the GP. But that's still, yeah, the standard of practice would be antibiotics for now. And it sounds like it's an area where you're right, things could definitely change in the coming years. And it sounds like we probably need a much larger kind of sample size to really look potentially more into the adverse events and other things that were not necessarily well covered in this paper just due to the size. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because if you look at the European societies of colorectal, so like Denmark and that area of the world, they're the ones that advocate the most against antibiotic use. If you look at the American college and more like England, they still kind of advocate for either definitive use of antibiotics or no antibiotics. So yeah, it's definitely a growing area that needs much bigger sample sizes from multiple areas around the world. Cause you know, each 
patient demographic will be slightly different. And so you do need that bigger sample from multiple centers around the world to kind of really definitively agree to this. If you look at the NHS practice guidelines for acute diverticulitis, they kind of sit on the fence. They don't commit to one or the other either. So they say that for people with acute diverticulitis who are systemically well, you can consider no antibiotic prescribing strategy, just offer simple analgesia, and you advise the person to represent if the symptoms persist or worsen. And they kind of acknowledge the fact that the evidence behind antibiotic therapy in uncomplicated diverticulitis is not particularly strong, but they also don't quite, of quite commit to that. So even the guidelines themselves are quite vague. They're not advocating for one or the other. And it very much comes down to surgical practice and again, to the institution's own willingness to either take on the risk of that. And you have to consider all the other things that come behind patient care, the accessibility to GP practice, your patient populations, medical literature and understanding of their own health and trusting that the patient will return to the hospital, go and see the GP if things worse. And so there's a lot of other confounding factors that probably influence whether you can take on this no antibiotic treatment, because obviously there are risk and benefits that need to be weighed up. Um, so I'll just open up to the rest of the floor, I guess, in terms of uh, the, this next question. But I guess on talking about your risks and benefits, do you think there are many risks associated with the standardised treatment of all these patients with antibiotics? I mean, apart from the obvious antibiotic resistance and allergy or whatever else, do you see much morbidity from the routine use of antibiotics in this population? You always want to be smart about the way you use antibiotics, mm -hmm. like you said. And I think that's probably the biggest aspect of it is good antibiotic stewardship because they themselves lead to other things. You know, you can get your C. leaf colitis, liver, uh, LFT derangements and all those kind of things. I guess from a risk benefit, no, it probably is risk-wise, relatively low risk to use antibiotics in these patients. But again, if you don't need to, why? So, Gay, did you have any thoughts on this study and I guess where we're at with this topic in general? Thanks, Carolyn. I really enjoyed the study and uh, Edgardo very well presented. I think it's a very, very good study. I have, um, I guess, a few issues with that as far as using outcomes of the study in my, in my practice. As, as you correctly mentioned, Edgardo, it has a fairly limited applicability for a number of reasons. And one of them are very stringent exclusion criteria. And the population with the language barrier that we have in the Western Sydney will definitely compound that. If you look at the exclusion criteria, I mean, the, if the white cell count is over 12, if they have any kind of fever, then they were excluded from the study. And to follow on to that, I, I sort of thought about the study as trying to compound two separate issues. One of them is use of antibiotics, which in itself is low cost and low morbidity with length of hospital stay, which I think is a probably a much bigger issue in the study, but they focused on the antibiotic use. Hospital stay is very expensive and reducing unnecessary admissions for patients that can be treated in the community is important. And as far as resistance breeding and bacterial, you know, picking up multi-resistant strains, if these patients can get home on a pack of oral antibiotics uh, and they don't spend time in hospital, it's highly unlikely that they'll pick up a C. diff infection as well. The exclusion criteria for these patients in the study pretty much means that they, the only reason they were admitted is to be part of the study. 
As you have correctly said, uh, Edgar, if this patient is uh, young, well, speaks good English, understands what's happening, and they have uncomplicated diverticulitis with no features of systemic inflammatory response syndrome, you know, you give them a shot of intravenous antibiotics uh, in emergency and you send them home with a five-day course of Augmentin and they'll get a follow-up with their GP and a colonoscopy a few weeks down the track. And that'd be a really, really robust form of managing this patient's very low side effect and complication rates. And there is good evidence to suggest that outpatient treatment of this patient is very adequate and acceptable. So I'm not quite sure what this paper is sort of trying to, to prove. The only reason you would admit a patient like that is to judge the response to antibiotics. And so if patients do have features of systemic inflammatory syndrome, if they have significant pain that cannot be managed, or if you're concerned for any other reasons, you know, they're diabetic, they're elderly, they're at high risk of complications, then you admit them and give them antibiotics and see if they respond to the antibiotics before letting them go home. Lastly, just by doing this study, by paying close attention to patients that they admit for diverticulitis, they've managed to reduce their hospital stay from an average of 80 hours. That was their initial calculation for the, to power the study to about 40 hours. And I found that quite enlightening. I think if we pay attention to people that we admit and we discharge them as soon as they achieve a response to antibiotic treatment, we can probably already reduce the hospital stay quite significantly. Thanks, Sergey. Those were some very useful points. I was particularly interested in what you mentioned about compounding of the length of hospital stay with the antibiotic treatment. I guess they're two quite separate things. And I would have thought that if you're comparing antibiotic treatment versus no antibiotic treatment, then certainly for me, the thing that I'm primarily interested in is what the outcome of that is and whether there's an adverse reaction from either treating or not treating the antibiotics. Are there any patients that you guys are not treating at the moment? There's two questions I heard there. <laughs> so the confounding of antibiotic with hospital stay, you're absolutely correct. If, if I am analyzing the effect of antibiotics, I would be looking for benefits of antibiotic treatment and side effects of antibiotic treatment. And length of stay is not, in my mind, a great way to evaluate the effect of antibiotics in a population that don't need to stay in hospital in the first place. In the population that we usually, I guess, be thinking about sending home anyway, are you sending any of them home without antibiotics? Currently, no. And I guess that, again, fits in with that hospital stay and response to antibiotics. If you have a patient admitted for 24, 48 hours, you can see if they are actually improving with treatment, either antibiotics or not antibiotics. And with understanding of the physiology of diverticulitis in absence of a systemically inflammatory response syndrome, I agree the antibiotics probably don't do a whole lot, but it will take a very brave clinician to send a patient in with intra-abdominal inflammation infection without antibiotics. So you either admit them for observation and don't give them antibiotics, or you send them home with a pack of oral antibiotics. Uh, that's, that's how I would work. Michael, from an emergency point of view, I'm interested in how this translates into your practice. Does this affect at all the patients that you're referring to the surgical team? And also, I wonder how we could apply the results of this study in terms of the use of short-stay units. At the moment, it doesn't really change how we refer because there isn't you know, an accepted way of giving them antibiotics or not yet. If we do end up, you know, kind of 
developing a very kind of robust protocol of of who we include to say not use antibiotics for that would kind of make it you know it more amenable to the use of a short stay unit to perhaps get that initial ct scan in those patients who aren't meeting the the systemic inflammatory response criteria to get that ct scan observe them for a short while and then decide whether they go home or not from there kind of thing but then, yeah, with regards to the use of antibiotics, again, it's, it's as we've already mentioned, keeping patients out of hospital is probably the easiest part. But then it's then, you know, the longer term implications of not using antibiotics on these people, do they end up then having, you know, recurrent or more severe diverticulitis or end up with the complications such as strictures? I think that's what we need to look at next, I think, um, with regards to this kind of study. Thanks so much. That's really enlightening. I hadn't even really thought about the kind of short stay option, but that's a really good point and something that I think would be interesting to incorporate into studies potentially going forward. Thank you so much, Edgardo. Thanks to everyone at home for listening. This is the first of a three-part series on general surgery. Given the length of some of our previous episodes and some of the valuable feedback we have received, we are likely to continue releasing each month's episodes in parts to make them more digestible. So stay tuned for parts two and three, and please feel free to contact us at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. As always, we would love to hear from you. Sky